everyone, David here. I hope you're enjoying Talking Transitions. If you've missed any of the first three podcasts, please do go back and check them out before listening to this one so you can see the common threads that weave between the different sectors and their transitions. Today's episode and the next four were all recorded at COP28 in Dubai in front of a live audience in the Knowledge Hub, which is why you'll hear a little bit of background noise. And in today's episode, the Lord Mayor of the City of London, Michael Mainelli, briefly introduces the topic before we delve into the panel itself. So please do take a listen to the Lord Mayor before enjoying the panel, and I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thanks for listening. I've got a very exciting panel uh, to join us for most of this hour, which we're recording for the Talking Transitions podcast. Um, my name is David Weston. I'm Editor-in-Chief at Foresight Climate and Energy. Uh, but before we begin with this uh, excellent panel, I'd like to welcome City of London Lord Mayor Michael Mainelli to uh, set the scene for us a little bit and give us some of his thoughts. Michael, thank you. Well, good morning and thank you very much, uh, David. As, as it was said, I'm Professor Michael Mainelli. I'm the 695th Lord Mayor of the City of London and an international ambassador for the city in the UK's thriving professional and financial services sector. I'm also here today wearing a slightly different lanyard and a slightly different badge for exactly that reason. Uh, seriously, I'm, I'm, very, I'm delighted to be representing the City of London, which is the world's oldest continuous democratic workers and residents cooperative, nearly 1400 years old. And so while much of the discussion on climate change focuses on green finance, what I want to emphasize today is that the importance of transition finance on that path to zero really cannot be overstated. Uh, so I'd like to begin by thanking EY for convening this panel and all the fantastic panelists for taking part. Uh, now, though the city of London streets are, you know, as you would imagine, steeped in history, we really couldn't be more committed uh, to the path to net zero. You may not be aware of this, but the City of London Corporation was the first government body in the world to introduce the Clean Air Act in 1953. We were at the Earth Summit in Rio in 1992 and have been at every meeting of COP. Uh, we supported the establishment of the carbon markets, which I was personally involved in in the 90s and early 2000s. The City of London Corporation has actually slashed its net carbon emissions by 66% since 2018 and is on track to reach net zero in our own operations by 2027. We're also pursuing a target of net zero for the entire square mile uh, by 2040. More broadly, the United Kingdom has established itself as a one-stop shop for green finance. We combine scientific excellence and financial expertise in a single location. In fact, we're the only place that leads in both the conventional green finance, uh, conventional finance center and green finance center rankings. Now, my theme as Lord Mayor is connect to prosper, and I'm trying to celebrate the many knowledge miles that run through our square mile throughout, throughout and around the world. I see us very much as the world's coffee house, focusing on how the city can help tackle global challenges through the power of positive connections. And I believe this session is very much another coffee house today, and I commend you for doing that. Now, with our existing leadership in transition planning and sustainable investment, we do believe we are primed to be the global center. But so what? Well, to quote the new financial, transition finance is an inconvenient truth in the debate on climate change. In an ideal world, companies would be able to green their operations with a wave of a wand. But we need to be realistic. 
some of the high emitting sectors and companies just can't switch off like that. And we must support them on the path to become greener before they become genuinely green. We urgently need to develop the market tools, standards, and incentives to scale financing for the transition of these hard-to-abate sectors. Now, the corporation is helping to advocate innovative financing mechanisms which support this transition, such as the carbon and nature markets, voluntary carbon offtake agreements, and sustainability-linked instruments and funds, at home and abroad, corporate and sovereign. For example, in March 2022, last year, the Republic of Chile issued a $2 billion 20-year sustainability-linked bond whose interest rate goes up as it fails to meet its targets. So it has no intention of not meeting those targets to keep that interest rate down. Japan's GX bond is expected to be the first sovereign transition bond, and I think we'll be hearing more about that. Closer to home, the London Stock Exchange is the first exchange to use a public carbon market framework to drive funding into climate mitigation projects. And since the development of the Clean Development Mechanism in Kyoto in 1997, COP3, at which the uh, city was a a major negotiator, we have found that carbon pricing really has been established as a very useful mechanism to reduce carbon emissions. We have about 23% of global emissions are covered by a credible ETS. Now, clearly, carbon markets and credits are no substitute for decarbonization. But when immediate decarbonization isn't possible... They ensure we don't sacrifice the good, reduced emissions, for the sake of the perfect, no emissions. And I'm delighted to say we're working alongside the UK government on the Transition Finance Market Review to help the sector become a leading provider of transition financial services. This will be building on the work of the UK government-led Transition Plan Task Force, which developed a global standard for companies to model their climate transition plans on what they call the gold standard. So, ladies and gentlemen, transition finance bridges the gap between the goals of tomorrow and the realities of today. I'm excited about the role that all of us can play in bolstering this market. Thank you once more to panelists for participating, to EY for hosting, and to you all for attending. And I hope we'll have a fruitful discussion and maybe move the dial just that little bit. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Really interesting. So let's move on to the panel now. Uh, this is the latest episode of Talking Transitions, uh, which is a new podcast uh, from Foresight Climate and Energy and EY. Uh, in the series, we are looking at the various transitions required to reach a sustainable economy and how it's affecting three key areas, the energy and resources industry, the financial services sector, which is uh, what we're talking about today, and government. In today's episode, We're coming to you from the Green Zone at the COP28 climate negotiations in Dubai. And from EY, uh, I am joined by Kazuto Kita from EY's financial services team and Joost Vriesweik from its tax team. Uh, Thanks for joining us today. The financial services sector is looking to scale up its transition finance capabilities. And there are a wide range of uh, available mechanisms and different approaches that are being taken. We've just heard from the City of London's Lord Mayor, Michael Mainelli who has set the transition finance scene for us. This will allow us to explore how different firms and sectors are reacting, as well as hearing from the agricultural sector, among many sectors that have to decarbonize about its specific challenges and solutions. Our guests on the panel are Daniel Hanna, Global Head of Sustainable Finance for the Corporate and Investment Bank arm of Barclays, uh, Graciela Parenti, a Head of Business and Sustainability and Government Affairs in Latin America 
at the agricultural science and technology firm Syngenta, and Jen Hui Tan uh, from asset management firm Fidelity. Please welcome all of our guests. I'd like to begin just briefly with uh, Kazuto and Yoast. Uh, Kazuto, where does transition finance stand today? Are, are we at the levels required for a sufficient and efficient sustainable transition? Thank you, David. Um, maybe before I answer to the question, let me say thank you very much for many uh, audience attending and also uh, wonderful and uh, distinctive panelists together with us today. So I'm really excited. And uh, regarding the transition finance, I think it's been uh, gaining traction uh, as part of the uh, broader sustainable finance movement because the world is struggling to uh, limit the global warming to 1.5 degrees. It is, um, you know, in order to uh, realize the carbon uh, neutral society by 2050, it is important to uh, finance the transition toward a steady and uh, you know, real uh, decarbonization, including the uh, energy conservation and uh, fuel uh, shifting, in particular in GHG-intensive uh, industries. Financing uh, to the uh, uh, projects that are already green, such as uh, renewable energy is, of course, important, but uh, uh, capital needs to flow to not only uh, the projects uh, in, in already you know, green, but also to the uh, traditional technologies and activities. Because uh, not all uh, countries, regions, uh, and uh, industries can decarbonize at once um, in terms of uh, both cost and uh, technology. And also it is necessary to maximize uh, to, uh, the carbon emission reduction by adopting the uh, transitional technologies. So, uh, but the scale of the transition finance uh, in the global market uh, is not that large uh, at this moment. And uh, I think uh, there are many challenges around the transition finance as we will be discussing today. Absolutely. But I think uh, the transition finance is very important because it will provide a new way of financing to decarbonize high emitting industries and also scale up activities that enable the transition from brown to green. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, Yost, what sort of mechanisms then are we seeing today and that are being deployed to scale up transition finance and its capabilities? Yeah, and, and you announced me as being from the tax and incentive side, so I'll stay a bit in my lane. And sure. that's all of my colleagues from the financial side uh, support that. I, I think uh, for me, if you look at the, the big incentives that are out there right now, and there's many, uh, but if you take the Inflation Reduction Act and the EU Green Deal as two prominent ones, um, there's an enormous amount of money available. Um, and so if you look at that, um, I think also if I look at uh, our teams helping clients out there to, to support that, um, that's growing very, very fast. There's a lot of help needed. So I think that's one of the yeah, real key mechanisms that is helping. What I don't see so much yet is, is that actually helping transition finance? So is that a, are, are the combinations actually happening enough? And there I, I'm actually wondering if we see enough examples of that. Um, so for me, that those are yeah very important mechanisms that are deployed. They're more policy mechanisms, but I think they actually help uh, yeah lead the pack a little bit. Absolutely. Um, and are these mechanisms able to help even uh, small and medium enterprises? Obviously, particularly in the agricultural sector, which we'll get onto a bit later. A lot of 
uh, businesses are uh, SME sized, are they able to access this transaction finance? I think we'll find out in a minute exactly. But I, I think it happens when funds are created on the back of these kind of incentives, then, then you, you, you get these effects. So it's more collective. You have examples of uh, incentives being accessed to create uh, drying equipment for farmers and actually help pharma communities with that investment. And that, that's then supported by incentives. So I think that's where we see large consumer products companies taking the lead to help in that. Um, are they able to access on their own? I think there's still a lot of admin, a lot of um, yeah, complexity involved. And again, if I took at, at, at uh, incentives, a lot of them are credits, tax credits. So are you going to wait until you can use the tax credit? And you know, as an SME, you still need to fund your project first and get that funding. Um, so that I think is more challenging for smaller companies. Uh, Daniel, I'd like to come to you from, from Barclays. What steps has, has Barclays taken to scale up transition finance capabilities? Well, first of all, thanks very much for the invite. It's great to be on this um, panel on such an important topic. And I, and I thought the uh, Lord Mayor's comments at the beginning really helped set the scene quite powerfully. I mean, maybe that I, can I just take a step back and give an example of transition finance? Yes. Because I think, as you uh, correctly said, there are not actually that many examples. And actually, just down the road from here, um, I was involved in structuring the first transition bond for an airline for Etihad Airways. And effectively, that mechanism allowed them to raise capital, to uh, electrify their ground fleet, to increase the amount of sustainable aviation fuel um, that they were deploying, which is one of the few levers that we've got at the moment um, for aeroplanes. Um, but it didn't turn them suddenly into a, a green, if you like, institution, because as we know, aviation is one of these examples of these hard to abate sectors. And I think the challenge is that that is one example, and there just have not been that many more examples. You gave a couple um, of things happening this year, but really it's been very far between. And so how do we scale up this kind of uh, finance flowing to decarbonize, particularly these hard to abate se sectors, I think is one of the key priorities that, that I hope this COP will add further momentum to. So from a Barclays perspective, I mean, we have a commitment to mobilize a trillion dollars of sustainable and transition finance, recognizing that we do need to absolutely scale renewables as fast as we can. Um, you know, we need a trebling effectively, as we know, of renewables, particularly in emerging markets, but also then tackling these hard to abate sectors. So there's a kind of commitment mobilization around that. And the second thing is really around scaling up these transition technologies themselves. We're investing 500 million pounds into a number of different technologies to tackle these hard to abate sectors, ranging from, um, hydrogen fuel cells for aviation, um, vertical farming that uses 99% less water um, to things like carbon capture. So I think it's about scaling the technology and then finding these finance pathways. And we'll, we'll probably talk about labeling later on. And is it through bonds? Is it a case of just giving them these companies money as loans or as grants? What sort of tools are we talking about to help transition finance grow? And are they scalable? Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. I mean, I think, and that last point, I think is absolutely key. There is, I think what we're seeing, particularly in the technology space, is this kind of scale up gap, right? So there's there's capital now that's really driving new technological innovation. And if you ever get slightly depressed about the state of climate change, uh, just spend any time with these entrepreneurs. And I think it's really invigorating about how technology is changing historic trade-offs. Um, but effectively, it's, it's thinking about a tool every step of the way. So with, with these companies, we're working them from idea 
all the way up to IPO, creating effectively an escalator of steps through Barclays where we can support um, them uh, scale and, and reach more capital and then ultimately, you know, really get to a significant size as a, as a leader. I think in the, in the market, what we also need to see is, again, every tool in the toolbox. So we kind of need to scale transition bonds, in, in my view. I think we also need to think about innovative other solutions um, in this space. Um, and of course, you know, leveraging public and private finance in terms of blended finance structures as well. So it is a variety of different things. I don't think it's unfortunately a silver bullet. Absolutely not. Um, James Wheat from uh, Fidelity, thank you for joining us. Um, can you describe any investment strategies uh, that support transition finance? And how are these strategies aligned with client expectations? Are your clients' expectations changing when it comes to transition finance? Expectations in this space are always changing. I think we can rely on that. I want to start, I think, maybe by reminding everyone of an obvious point, but I think it needs constant reminding, which is that financial services net zero is effectively meaningless unless it comes with economy-wide net zero. Our net zero is really just the aggregation of the net zero ambitions of all of the clients that we provide financing, investment, and support for. And I think it's now being broadly recognized that achieving paper decarbonization is not difficult, particularly in listed equity space. Um, the sources of carbon are quite concentrated. So you can, you, can you can compose a net zero portfolio without a lot of difficulty. But what effect does that have on real world emissions? That I think is what finance is aspiring to affect. So when I think about what, uh, what we're trying to do at Fidelity and what many other investors are, I think about it in three big buckets. I think the first is providing financing to providers of solutions. So whether it's technology providers or efficiency providers, we want to try to encourage and spur that innovation. The second, I think, is around uh, efficiency, sometimes called demand management. We think about carbon redu emissions reduction sometimes as being purely a supply side driven exercise particularly focusing on energy. There's actually the other side of the equation, which is how do we make better, more efficient uses of our resources, either through circular economy innovations or through better efficiency or just managing the demand at the uh, consumer level. And then the third, I think, is influencing the pathway of transition assets. And that is in, in, inevitably a uh, company by company assessment of where companies are on different transition pathways. Daniel talks already about hard to abate sectors. They have a different transition pathway. We should also be honest and say that some sectors won't have a pathway at all. They will be stranded assets, most prominently coal, and the ways in which we need to responsibly wind up those businesses, taking into account just transition considerations. I think that's part of the challenge of finance as well. I'd like to bring in uh, Graziella uh, here. Um, how important is transition finance to the agricultural sector? Um, and how big of a transition are we talking about? Well, finance is critical for farmers, I think for everyone. So first of all, thank you so much, UI, for hosting me. I'm, uh, I'm based in Brazil. I'm Brazilian. So um, starting from that, so the energy matrix in Brazil is very much renewable. So about 70, 75% is from renewable energy. But nevertheless, there is no farmer from small, medium and big size 
farmers that are not looking in how to make it more efficient, the reliability, the affordability. So in the last years, there was a lot of investments about, you know, having solar panels all over, you know, the farmers, the farms. Uh, so this is, this was a big investment, but this didn't came from, I would say blended finance or government. This came from the private banks, you know? So this, this was a, a big, uh, and I would say that, you know, this is more spread around, but the other side of it is for the transition is how can we intensify the production or increase the yield in the same area that we have. So this is the new frontier. Uh, in our case, in Syngenta, we have identified this, um, I would say, opportunity, <laughs> because it's also an opportunity to um, restore degraded land. I don't know, guys, if you are aware, but when you talk about big agricultural co uh, countries around the world, you are talking about 20, 30 percent of their territory used for agriculture. In Brazil, it's just less than 8 percent. People don't have this idea at all. And, the other, and you have around 20 percent of the land for cattle. So, and we would say that a third of it, or maybe half of it, is degraded in some degree. And the, uh, to restore this for agriculture requires a lot of money. We are talking about billions, you know, uh, of dollars. You're not talking about small money. When you, so for instance, when I saw some announcements here about, oh, we are found for $200 million, that's not enough. $200 million, it's what we are doing today. But our ambition is to reach 1 million hectares by 2030. And the government uh, just announced a plan to restore 40 million hectares. That's a billion with many zeros with it. So, uh, and how are we going to make it? We're not going to make it alone. But when we started as a pioneer, we find a lot of hurdles. So uh, also, first of all, the regulation, uh, the standardization, the, the risk of the credit of the farmers, because of course, this is something that the banks, it's a bank operation. It's a financial operation. So they have to look on that and how the companies can support that and bring the data for you know, minimize the risks of the bank and then we can make it happen. But has to, you know, you have to have people that are committed to that. And of course, having the, the monitoring to show and to the, the right data for you to be able to advance in this, in this endeavor. Just, to, yeah, I mean, there, there's many zeros, I agree, right? And, and uh, that, that's the challenge. If, if you bring it back also to Daniel's point though, but at, at farmers and, and you, you're talking about vertical farming, um, what, what, what I find difficult, and I don't know how that works is for the actual farmers, or maybe you have more experience. I'm, I'm helping personally in a Dutch, cause I'm Dutch and we love agriculture, uh, a Dutch, a high tech farmer to expand overseas to access funding. It's so hard. It's so hard. And I appreciate that you need returns. That's, you know, the whole financial world is, is built on that and that's fair. Um, but it seems impossibly difficult for smaller companies without help to actually go there, even if you have quite high tech uh, products to offer. Yeah. And I think this de-risking, someone is looking to do the rest of the beginning. It takes a while and, and seems we have a vacuum there before everybody dares to get in. And that seems to be a, a huge hurdle we have to get over. Maybe to add on to this, but I, I think, I mean, agriculture is probably the hardest of the hard to abate sectors. So we, we've gone straight to where 
the biggest challenges, which is fantastic because I, I do think we need to put, you know, the the brains on, on this panel and in this audience um, to that. Um, I mean, Barclays banks one in four farms in the UK, so we are very thoughtful on this point, and I think. This is where carbon markets and biodiversity credits could potentially play a role. So I think there's a there's a role for technology. I think there's also a role for policy in terms of thinking, how do we incentivize farmers to go to a more regenerative process? Um, and there's actually a really important role for data as well. So there's just really poor data on this space. And poor data means it's harder for a, a farmer to understand how to increase its yield, but also it's harder for a bank to finance it. So we've got a three-year partnership with the University of Oxford to try and tackle this data point as well. So I think that's absolutely a, a key piece of, of the puzzle. But I think agriculture is really, really hard. I think in some of the other sectors, we've got levers that we know are a little bit nearer that can get scaled. So I think, you know, solar and wind, everyone knows about that. But as we start thinking about, you know, areas like manufacturing and industry, how we then scale, let's say, green hydrogen, you know, is, is also a, a key piece. So I think we need to be tackling all of these. But I think as one of the panelists said earlier, we've got to be thoughtful that each sector has a different transition pathway with its own challenges and get very specific around how do we tackle those challenges sector by sector, value chain across the whole piece. So there's no, there's no blueprint for transition finance and that you could apply to different sectors? I think we cannot apply even for the for dif, uh, for the same countries. You know, yeah. you have different uh, realities in each country. So we only talk about agriculture. When you have like um, the production for big farmers, when you have countries where you just have small farmers, so it's a different mechanism. Yeah. You cannot really copy and paste. But what you can is try to harmonize some standards mm -hmm. and uh, and how you monitor it. I think this is okay. But the financial mechanism is very much local. Are you seeing a willingness from the financial services sector in order to provide this finance? Is it easy enough to access? And for people, for farmers that are busy, they're out in the fields all day, doing whatever they need to do, feed the world. Um, are they able to go and find this business and get this investment? How easy is it to access transition finance? Well, in the Brazilian economy, agriculture is 25% of the GDP. So banks are very interested okay. to try to unlock this potential. Sure. And so, uh, as, I, as I said, we started in the beginning, like two years ago with uh, banks, you know, directly with loans, but now even the government has a plan for that. So I assume that in the next year, this will be because there is, uh, there, it's our vocation and uh, the potential to double the production is there. We can do this in a short period of time. So we need money to intensify, you know, we invest in region ag practices, you know, and, and all the monitoring related to um, ESG standards are critical. All the technology with satellites that you have can assure that you are doing, you know, what you are doing, to, uh, you are saying. So that's a lot to do. Gentlemen, uh, I'd like to come to you. How is the sector treating this transition finance? Obviously, it's very, still very new. It's still emerging. Is it being overly cautious uh, as it approaches it and still figuring things out? Uh, and what needs to happen for it then to take bolder steps in transition finance? I think we're right to be cautious. I think there is an enormous amount of greenwashing risk and reputational risk. You are, by definition, buying assets that are so-called dirtier applying a theory of change around how they can be improved, and then calling that a sustainable outcome. Intellectually, I think we all know that's what needs to happen. But the reputational risks and the regulatory risks are very significant. So I think we need to uh, tread quite carefully. I'm, I'm actually of two minds whether transition finance as a label is even helpful. Okay. 
because sometimes I think this is really just working capital that companies need to spend in order to make their products and services fit for a future low carbon world. Why is this a special type of finance over and above any other thing that you would want a, a company to do anyway? I think in terms of unlocking sort of levers uh, for, for future growth and, and drivers, I think a lot, a lot of those sit in the policy space. In, you know, I think there's been a lot of discussion, especially at this COP, around governments needing to lead from the front and finance being an enabler following that. Finance is very good at taking a future signal, however uncertain, translating that into today's values but finance cannot make up a signal by itself. And so we need different kinds of policy levers. I think most um, obviously a carbon price, whether it's a tax, a credit, a trading scheme, it really doesn't matter. Even the removal of fossil fuel subsidies would help to level out the playing field a little bit. Um, some sort of indication that businesses and therefore finance can then take and interpret to mean that it is the sensible business thing to do to invest in decarbonization technologies. Can I agree with everything Jinhui said, uh, particularly about the carbon price? I mean, I think if there was a hundred dollar global carbon price, then you know, I think we would be seeing transition happen a lot more rapidly. But with one exception, and I think it's the point around um, transition labeling. And I sort of take a step back. I, I think sustainable finance, you know, we've done a terrible job of having multiple labels. There's an alphabet soup of different definitions. So why do we need a I think Genevieve's right to call out the challenge. Why another label? And I think it is precisely because of the, the very key point that uh, Genevieve made at the beginning, which is there is a lot of greenwashing risk here. And I think we are thoughtful around wanting to finance real world decarbonization that wouldn't happen otherwise. Um, given the sort of the nascency of that and kind of the potential risks of misrepresentation or reputational risk that arises out of it, having a clear standard of what that criteria would mean that is agreed by multiple different parties, I think would enable more flow of capital to drive that real world decarbonization. So I think labeling and standards do have a role to play here um, that are absolutely key. And that's one of the reasons why Barclays will be hopefully shortly publishing our own transition framework in a very transparent way and saying, look, this is how we think about it. These are the effectively the technologies that we think can unlock towards a one and a half degree pathway. And this is how we would label it. And if you disagree, please come and tell us and you know, really want to put that out there as part of the debate and thoughtfulness around being transparent. Um, and if we can improve upon it, then fantastic. Yost, Jeffrey mentioned the need for a policy as a sort of a guiding light. How can policy help transition finance approaches? What examples have you seen that are working well? Yeah, and I think Daniel's point is quite important there. The, 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 the definitions and standards uh, I think that's a fundamental piece. So you know actually what you're uh, what you're looking at. If we look at back at at some of the policy instruments used um, in US, and we have Kathy sitting here who will who will may, maybe jump in, but she's she's been uh, writing some of that legislation in the past. Um, if you look at solar and wind in the US, maybe easier than than uh, agri. Um, that has driven enormous amount of money into these projects, and so. I, I genuinely think if you now add up the, the various incentives and loans available that are government-backed, um, that's really substantial. I mean, you mentioned a trillion. I think if I add up uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and the EU, then I get to a trillion too. Um, that is backed by governments, institutions that are willing to take probably a little bit more risk or a different type of risk. 
So I, I think that's essential to access. And uh, whilst we wait for a carbon price, we all would love that, these things are real. And, and if I, again, look at the amount of applications going in at the moment, um, I, I think there's real pickup on that. So I think those are great uh, instruments, and I'd hope we see a bit more. There's a couple of things, and, and Kathy, you may want to jump in if you want here. Huh? But for instance, uh, in the US, some of these tax credits uh, are tradable. And that means if if I actually get credits because of a certain project, I could actually sell them. Uh, that creates a whole new market that creates flexibility. And I think these things are uh, essentially instruments that are just helping uh, the, the world actually access the right type of things. And, and there may be more suitable to particular companies' needs. If I'm at a startup phase of something promising, I, a certain incentives may not work if I have to wait too long for them. Um, I think the other thing is technology neutrality. You can't, I mean, again, maybe Daniel has a point there for the rules you're publishing. You, you can't bet everything on today's technology because maybe next year there's something better or different. Um, so you, you you need to kind of grow with that. So I think these incentive mechanisms need to be written in such a way that they, they grow with the development side of things. So those are just a few examples. And I think more yeah, countries and nations can uh, use that. The, the other example, the last one is if you look at the EU, um, where I'm sitting a bit closer, during COVID, nations got more uh, liberty for state aid for obvious reasons, and they still have that. And so if you look at that, it's now often easier to apply for an incentive at the national level, providing the nations have some money, which is another challenge in its own right. Um, so what we're seeing is that a number of projects are prefer to go to a national pot rather than competing, because you compete at the EU level, with other projects. Because maybe someone else from another country has a different project. We're fighting for that same pot of money. So at national level, that seems to work. So maybe that's an encouragement that nations need to also help their own backyard a bit more with those kind of schemes. Kazuto, from your perspective, what do you see as the key trends and opportunities in transition finance? And how can businesses prepare for this evolving landscape? Uh, thank you. Uh, I think uh, financial institutions have a critical role um, to play in accelerating uh, uh, global flow of uh, transition finance. And as, as a, a panelist already mentioned, you know, uh, we need to deliver a tangible or real world improvement, not the paper decarbonization. Um, however, uh, there is little uh, consent, uh, consensus uh, on how to support the transition. Uh, meaning, you know, there are uh, no set of um, um, clear, uh, criteria and uh, qualifying technologies or uh, industries uh, that are commonly used. Um, I think uh, transition finance is still a nascent approach, uh, although there are a lot of future potentials. And uh, it needs to uh, credibility, I think, uh, by uh, setting a tangible KPI and also by taking a dynamic view. Better uh, transparency and better uh, consistency, and also uh, having uh, actual success stories uh, needed to uh, develop, I think. And from the uh, industry uh, perspective, I mean, for businesses, for uh, secure uh, sufficient fund for the transition, I think uh, it's uh, important to develop and disclose um, um, very uh, transparent uh, transition plan which is consistent with the Paris Agreement and also embed uh, associated uh, governance structure to uh, monitor 
the you know, progress against the uh, strategic transition plan and also make um, you know, real actions uh, toward steady uh, decarbonization. Daniel, you mentioned uh, Buckley's bringing out its own sort of, I guess, I don't know, taxonomy or frameworks or definitions of, of transition finance. Um, is it possible to create a more uniform uh, definition? Uh, and would that help? And would that help as well with greenwashing as well? No, I, I think, I think um, that we've, we've seen since the first green bond was issued over 10, 10 years ago now, you know, we've seen an exponential growth in that as a, effectively as a, as a new type of asset class. So um, having standards that everyone can kind of agree with, I do think is a key enabler for the growth and scaling of capital. Um, and so, you know, I think the sort of transition framework that we're putting out um, is really to help further the debate and also just to be clear around so that everyone can sort of see, be very transparent that when we label something transition finance, you can see what, what we mean. Um, I, and I do hope that we will see at some point a much more common agreement around around that. I think we've seen some progress over the last sort of 12 months. ICMA's come out with some guidance ar around that from a fixed income perspective. I think, um, you know, we're seeing in the EU space, um, I think, um, sort of some alignment around the different types of Article 8, 9 funds and how that plays. And then the UK has, has recently come out with its guidance around labeling as well. So I, I think we're sort of moving towards this de facto. Um, but but certainly, I think a, a broad span agreement across you know, many geographies, because capital is global, uh, would certainly help. Uh, and does it need to come from, from governments? Can it come from um, sector bodies like uh, GFAMs or something like that? Who, who should be writing these uh, frameworks? So I think, I mean, I think the private sector is very good at innovating. Uh, and I think the financial sector is very good at coming up with new approaches, uh, new models, um, and new instruments. Um, so, you know, we're, we're talking about transition finance, but, you know, we, we've seen just, again, in, in one thing we haven't talked about, but I'll make a nod to, which is more capital going into nature, you know, the innovation around things like debt for nature swaps. Um, so I think, initially getting those standards and getting that innovation from the private sector is really helpful. But then you do really, I think, need this kind of public-private partnership to try and formalize those standards. Uh, and the key thing, I think, again, because given capital is global, is then to try and get interoperability across the different geographies. Um, and because I, th I think the more you can kind of recognize um, that a label in one geography is going to be the same as another, the more that makes it easier for investors to, to kind of scale this. I think transition finance is, is harder, again, just as we've heard, given how sector and geographic dependent it can be. But uh, I would hope that you can kind of take um, some of the principles and key technologies and then think about how that could get applied globally. Jen, we, you mentioned uh, labeling and calling it gen transition finance. Um, but then how do you mark success? And, and how do you measure the impact of transition finance? What sort of uh, indicators and metrics do you need to consider? And if we just call it finance, does that remove the need for those sort of definitions and metrics? I think this is where the importance of having clear definitions that we all agree on come, you know, come out. And I think we're moving very rapidly towards that state of play. There is nothing an ESG professional loves more than a good framework. And we've got a lot of these frameworks coming out. I might plug one that was announced yesterday by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, a transition taxonomy that classifies assets on a traffic light system, red, amber, green, 
and the amber category, the transition category, are, are these assets that need to meet specified criteria in order to qualify as green in the future. And I think that kind of clarity helps industry to gather around these different, so it's not, it's not Barclays definitions or Fidelity's definitions, it's commonly agreed um, policy standards. I think that's now being complemented as well with corporate transition plans. So we're starting to see regulated mandatory action uh, plans by companies on how they are achieving the targets and the metrics that they've set. These provide additional guidance for financial players to be able to assess how these um, the, these transitions are happening in the real economy. And are we seeing asset managers and investors, are they able to measure the impact of their transition finance investments in more ways than simply bottom line return on investment? So yeah, I mean, the, the ultimate measurement is the ability to which you improve your carbon emissions, your intensity. I think that's really the, for every unit of revenue you generate or, or, or product you make, can you reduce the amount of carbon associated with that, um, that, that production or generation? I think that's the standard that we can agree is the right standard. How companies get there require a series of intermediate metrics to make sure that they're tracking. And would a carbon price then make that a much more attractive element? In a way, a carbon price slightly removes the need for all of this because you just you, it goes straight into the financial statements. And actually, that's where the ISSB is so important. A lot of people think the ISSB is about getting better climate data. It isn't, actually. The, the CDP already gives us a lot of great scope one, scope two, scope three data. Where the ISSB is going to be really important is how sustainability metrics and carbon metrics relate to financial metrics. So how do the sustainability elements speak to the financial statements of the company? A carbon price would really allow that to flow through in a more natural way. Right. But in the interim, the ISSB can provide the financial plumbing for managers to be able to assess the, the, the impacts of that sure. ahead of that um, coming into force. Thank you. I'd love to open it up to the audience. So if you've got any questions, please do uh, raise your hand before we get there. Um, Graziella, I'd love to come to you next. Um, so what now? What additional support does, um, say, the agricultural sector, but other hard to abate sectors need now? Uh, and what types of transition finance would make a difference today? I think there is an element of um, education from the farmers to get uh, more user to this kind of, you know, there there, there is some mistrust between farmers and banks, I would say that. So I think this is something for us to, to move on. The other thing um, is about really understanding that one size doesn't fit for all and understand exactly the, part, the, the, the key elements of each crop. <laughs> it's important, each region that you are based. And uh, there is going to be the need of huge money. Mm. And so really try to find a scalable mechanisms. Yeah. You know, again, when I see produce of, you know, thousand hectares, hundred million dollars, this is not going to take us anywhere. So how we are able to really find things that we can go for a million hectares for a billion dollars on that. So I think this, and also to understand what is exactly there is, there is no loan without risk. So what are the risks that you want to take and, uh, and use the technology? And there is a booming environment of agri-techs to, to bring this data 
to uh, to um, mitigate the risk that is associated to that. Uh, any questions from the audience? Can I help? Oh, couple, lovely. Uh, just wait a second. I will come to you with a microphone. Um, please do uh, introduce yourselves. Good morning. I'm Simon Connell from Baringa. Pleasure to be here. Shenwei, I found it really interesting that you mentioned working capital when you talked about what companies needed to transition. And of course, that's going to come out of Daniel's pocket. So I'm just really interested in the role Fidelity sees itself in being able to play in mobilizing new capital into the transition. When I say working capital, I mean the, the, the general resources of the company. And really, I think and w- w- what I'm saying is that the general resources of the company need to be mobilized towards achieving that transition. And the three ways in which you measure that are revenue, capex, and opex. And that, that ultimately becomes how you assess corporate progression on that transition. How do you mobilize new finance is really around how do you make this space more attractive for finance to want to invest? And here you are in a whole new world of blended finance, concessionary capital, catalytic capital, all of these different levers that you can start to pull. I think there's a lot of advanced discussions going on around these sorts of uh, modes of capital as well. And I think we're interested in participating in that. Um, we can talk about that and what we think are the right ways to, to, um, to deliver that. But I, what I'm thinking about here is the mainstream of finance. There's only a certain amount of capital that will accept trade-offs to their return. All of us are here really to generate financial return. You can talk about the duration of that return, long and short and all that, but generally speaking, all clients want return. So really, when I think about crowding in mainstream finance, it's really around changing the risk return profile of these investments to make them attractive. And are you seeing a trend for acceptance of longer returns on investment? A lot of these technologies take a while to scale up or take time to make an impact. Are you seeing that people are more accepting of longer term in returns? Um, it's, it's hard to generalize. I don't think it's a surprise that this current high interest rate environment is causing significant underperformance in clean energy sectors and, and so on. I think there are cycles to these markets. I think people have to uh, accept that's how, that's how it works. I think asset persistency in ESG type funds tends to be longer than in mainstream products. I think that's one of the reasons why um, the active management industry is more interested in these products as well. Gratzilla, you were nodding yeah. what you, you Yeah, were- in our case, so our, uh, normally the loan for agriculture is around three to four years. So an hour is a 10 years loan uh, with a grace period on the first three. Because when you are restoring the graded land, the first years you are not really producing in its maximum. So, and this is a very different kind of low and when you you see the others that are on the market. So that's why it makes it attractive for the farmer to invest on it because it's a big investment, as I said. Yeah. Daniel as well, Long, longer term return investment, is that something you're seeing? I mean, I, I, I think I would uh, echo what Genway said. Look, the reality is the we saw an extraordinary growth in renewables post-Paris, a, a five-fold increase, incredibly positive, huge momentum. Um, that also happened at a period of historic low interest rates. So I, I do not think we should shy away from the challenge of the transition at rates of 5%. I think that is a different challenge um, and one where we do need to be thinking even more creatively around how to crowd capital uh, into this space. Perfect. Uh, did you have a, still have a question? Yep. Thank you. My question for the panel is, um, which of the hardest to abate sectors um, should we really be pushing on to get to one and a half degrees, uh, collectively pushing on, and also um, of those sectors which are closest to a breakthrough? Who wants to jump in there? <laughs> it's a great question. Uh, a really, really great question. I think um, 
So I, I will break it into three areas that I think can make a material difference um, in terms of sectors and technologies. I think the first is around decarbonization of industry. So I sort of teed that up a little bit at the beginning, but I, I forget the exact stats, but it's a very large percentage of global emissions. Um, and I think things like the Inflation Reduction Act, the EU New Green Deal, um, the work that's happening in the UK around hubs, some of the thinking that Singaporeans are doing around how do we scale tools like green hydrogen are actually getting momentum. I think there's been a lot of hype in this space as well. So, you know, of all the projects that have been announced, less than 10% of FID, but, you know, we are seeing a doubling of electrolyzer shipments at this stage, you know, a real tripling of the kind of momentum. So I think how we go after the value chains of things like steel and other things, really, really key. Second one then is, is around, um, we've touched on it again, but I actually think of it as a food system. How do we create a nature positive food system and use actually nature as a way of improving resiliency um, and also decarbonizing at the same time, I think is really key. And the third one, which we can't lose sight of is how do we actually really equip the consumer to make that journey as well and have you know a, a consumer led push on this. And so in that, I think we're seeing a real scale up, say, in Europe around heat pumps. You know, we've obviously seen a lot around residential solar, but I'm really interested in how we then create capital at scale into those products. Um, we did a very innovative uh, securitization for Einride, a European-based EV company at business-to-business level. Um, and it's those kind of tools that I think can help scale up how the consumer can access these products. And then on top of the sort of decarbonizing industry and the nature positive food system, I think those are the three that I'd really be focusing on. If I if if I can just add one general comment, I think I think we should be optimistic about the transition. I think the transition is is happening. Is it fast enough? We can all debate speed and pace and all that, but it's there in all of our you know in, in all our lives. We may even peak global carbon emissions by next year, which would be quite an extraordinary feat for a society that has been built on energy and carbon intensivity. When, when you say what sectors are hard to abate, actually what comes to my mind is the sector that is not hard to abate, which is energy. We've actually cracked how to decarbonize energy, which is extraordinary. We, you know, we, we, we spent a long time trying to figure out how to do that. And now in many parts of the world, that's already happened. So if you think about the challenge in other industries, there are still technological hurdles, there are economic hurdles, but I think a lot of those can still be, you know, we should be optimistic that we can, we can achieve it. Yeah, when we see the energy, the emissions, 70% comes from energy. So on the ABC curve, that's where you have to tackle. So agriculture and the change of land is like 10 and 10. So if you want to really tackle the problem, then it's energy. And I, I, I would say that maybe we're reaching the final here, but my, my provocation here is about how the, the world see renewable fuel, you know? So this is something that in the case of Brazil and, and Argentina and US, so everything that is related to, you know, ethanol and things like that, that we are able to advance a lot. I don't know if you are aware, but the, for instance, the oil, the diesel that used for trucks in Brazil, 25% is biodiesel. Uh, also for the gas. So there are, there are proven uh, uh, alternatives to drive this in this journey. We are not going to become electric cars tomorrow. Doesn't make sense for all, at least for my country, doesn't make sense. So how can we understand? And guys, biofuels don't compete with food. Maybe this is the case of Europe, but it's not the case of the other side of the world. Really good insight. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm Aged Shiwa. I work for UK Finance, so we're the banking um, trade body in the UK. We've been working with the Rocky Mountain Institute for the past few months on transition finance 
uh, including with some of our members, including Barclays. So I know Daniel will probably be familiar with this work. Um, the Rocky Mountain Institute also issued, um, I think a couple of weeks ago, a call to action letter with a few other NGOs operating in that space like ShareAction, um, exploring the, the sort of what's needed and issuing recommendations to policymakers and financial services um, and recognizing also the importance of good transition finance efforts. What would we as an industry potentially want to see from that NGO partnership uh, and relationship? What would be helpful for uh, your different points of views, including uh, benchmarking, uh, but also support where, where, there is, where there is good being done in the transition finance space? Anyone want to jump in here? I, I personally think the term greenwashing and is, is used a bit too much. I think it's used a bit too freely. Um, you know, I, I, I worry about people's willingness to put their head above the parapet if they are concerned that... So, for example, I mean, we all know that offsets and credits are controversial. But what the environment we've created is that a lot of corporates have zero incentive to want to buy these credits to achieve net zero targets because... Why, 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 why would they want to take that kind of risk from investors and consumers? But what that ends up doing is impeding the flow of capital to projects that may actually be able to do some meaningful reduction or avoidance work to begin with. So I think maybe, uh, you know, that spirit of collaboration and partnership between NGOs and the financial sector, I think that would really help Booth Dial. I think kind of focusing our attention on what I think will really change, which is policy and NDCs, you know, I think... Talking about NDC zero cop, I think is 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 quite appropriate. We know that the NDCs are not only not ambitious enough, but they don't lack enough specificity around how those targets and those net zero ambitions will be achieved at the economy level. So, if I think about what will really move the needle for finance and for NGOs wanting to support finance, it's around understanding government transition plans. How are you going to create new markets, new sectors that will enable whole economies to decarbonize? That's when we can anticipate where new products and services might be needed and where financial players like, like Barclays and Fidelity can go. Any more points there on collaboration, either between financial services businesses or with NGOs? Is there enough collaboration happening within this space or people doing it in, in their own time? Well, I mean, maybe a general point. I think there's a lot of fragmentation in all this. So you, you see lots of initiatives. Um, we're, we're seeing a lot of projects uh, looking for funding, but I, I'm not sure if we're teaming enough on, on these kind of opportunities together with the financial institutions. Um, and, and I see a lot of our clients uh, taking too much of a piecemeal approach. Uh, sometimes funding and incentives being icing on the cake. Uh, and not taking a, a, a enough of a strategic view on a portfolio of investments that you have ahead of you. Also by geography, there's a lot available, a lot possible. And for me, it's a little bit too fragmented. It's maybe to your point, if you don't scale that up, uh, then you do lots of little things. And I'm not sure if that's moving the needle fast enough. Uh, any final questions from the audience? Yeah, just one at the front here. Last question. Hi there, my name is Lutamio. I'm part of the Green Aviation Task Group with the City of London Corporation. Um, I was very interested in the um, case study that you gave, Daniel, with regards to um, sustainable aviation fuel. Um, so my question was more around, you know, how do we 
um, work together with financial services, aviation and energy in terms of decarbonizing the um, aviation sector overall, but broken down into four buckets. So one is around creating the next generation of fuel efficient aircraft. Um, the second is around um, sustainable aviation fuel. And then the third is very much around um, operations and then ground infrastructure as a fourth one. Just to kind of get your thoughts around um, existing financial instruments, but also um, innovating those financial instruments. So keen to hear thoughts from both um, Fidelity and Barclays. Thank you. Well, that sounds like a really great framework for thinking about how to scale up central aviation fuel. So I, I really look forward to learning more after this session. But I mean, I think it's, it is a really interesting um, space. Uh, we've actually, so Barclays is sponsoring the Startup Village. So after here, you know, please do walk on down there. You'll see one of uh, the companies that we've invested in through our sustainable impact capital, Zero Avia, who are looking at hydrogen fuel um, cells for aviation to really tackle short haul uh, flights, which are 75% of the emissions that we see in the aviation sector. So I think how we scale up the next generation of technology is really key. Um, we are actively looking at a number of sustainable aviation um, SAF plants at the moment from a financing perspective. I mean, the reality is to, to, to make a significant difference by 2030, 2035, we need to rapidly scale the availability of SAF. Um, so thinking quite thoughtfully around that. Um, and then I think there is this aspect around how policy and finance can kind of come together in the policy instruments that we've seen work in scaling up other technologies, uh, whether it's things like CFD in the UK or or other types of models, I think it's absolutely key. So we're actively looking at that as well. So it's it's a it's a really good point, and um, yeah, looking forward to hearing more work about after afterwards. Any very quick points on that? I think you know more about that than I do. <laughs> You'll have to con uh, connect after this session. That is sadly all we have time for today. My thanks to Yost Casuto, Genhui Graziella, and D uh, and Daniel, and of course uh, Lord Mayor Michael Menelli, uh, and our excellent audience here in Dubai. For the audience here, uh, please do scan the QR code uh, to provide your feedback and your three main takeaways uh, from today's session. Uh, and for those listening at home, please do share your feedback on social media. And we'll see you all again very soon. Thank you. Thank you.